let's be honest, church, you know, as uh, our little friend Micah was being escorted out the door there, and we hear the words, no. Is it not true that sometimes that is how we interact with our Heavenly Father, right? Amen. Okay. Okay. Amen, church. Amen. Amen. We're just being honest. But here, here is the awesome thing. When we finally comply and go with our Heavenly Father out the door into his pastures, into what he leads us into, isn't it good? Isn't it awesome? Because he has our best at heart. Just to throw in a little analogy there and not allow that thing to in any way be a distraction, but more a reflection, perhaps. Is Mike Jeffords here this morning? Or did he step out with our friend Micah? Is Mike, okay, he's not here so I can tell the joke then. Just make sure he doesn't come in halfway because he won't understand it. (laughs) Now, how many of you have uh, had dreams that you remember details? You remember details? Yeah, uh, apparently I had a dream the other night, and, and I came to this river, and it was a river of mud, okay? And, and Peter, Apostle Peter, he says, look, Mike, before you uh, get to heaven, you have to cross this river of mud. And I'm not saying that this is theologically sound by any means. And so as I'm dreaming this dream, and St. Peter says, you got to cross this river of mud. He says, now listen, as you do that, just understand that the depth to which you sink in this river of mud is reflective of your sins. I'm wondering, should I take the chance? But I'm crossing this river and I'm up ankle deep here, not doing too bad. And now I'm knee deep and I'm waist deep. And before you know it, it's up to here. And I'm looking over and there's Sarah Joy. And, and she's just knee deep. And I'm thinking, way to go, Sarah Joy. Great job. And I'm looking over there's Cole. Cole's he's knee deep too. And he's doing great. And my wife, of course, she's walking on top of all the mud. And, and then finally I see Sarah and, and Sarah, Sarah's like right up to about here. And I'm thinking, Sarah, that's great. That's awesome. Where's Mike? And she says, I'm standing on his shoulders. But I don't know about you, but especially when I was a kid and I would have dreams. And you guys know that I really didn't have that dream. Okay. Um, so I just don't want you saying, well, Mike, Pastor Mike had a dream about you. You got to hear it, all right? But when I was a kid, how, and, and how many of you uh, can agree with this? You, you had, did you, any of you have nightmares? And so here's my question. Some of you didn't raise your hands, really? You didn't have nightmares. Uh, maybe because I had a troubled past, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I was like that Mike. I was like Mike. I would, yeah, there was a lot in me that God needed to remove. And for, for me, I would have nightmares. And some nightmares, and I'm not the only one, but some of those nightmares are reoccurring nightmares, aren't they? And for me, my nightmares would consist of monsters and giants and and things like this. And they they terrified me. And I was one of those kids who would check the closet and check under the bed and, okay, we're good, I can go to bed now. Even though I slept in a room with three other brothers, okay, I needed to make sure that it was safe. And, And the truth is, we can have these dreams, they can be terrifying, terrifying nightmares. You know, monsters, giants, and, and they stir up fear in us, and we, ru- we want to run and hide. You know, isn't it amazing that when, wherever you hide, like if you're hiding behind the curtain in your room, they always find you. 
how do they do this? They have like this radar, these monsters, these giants, they just know where you're hiding. And of course they pull back the curtain and you're staring the monster in his face or this giant in his face and you're so terrified, at least I always waked up. Um, and and th th these things we would run from and we would hide from them. And here's the awesome thing. I eventually came to this point of maturity in which when I was having one of these nightmares, I would realize, wait a second, I'm having a nightmare. That means this is a dream and it's my dream. And if it's my dream, I get to say what happens in my dream. Has anyone ever had recognized that? In Come on, that's it? It is really, it is an awesome thing. And I don't mean to make too much of a parallel here, but it's kind of like in the movie, The Matrix, where he, at the very end there, where he realizes he can bend the rules and rules. Anyway, so you're in this, I'm in this dream, and, and I just decided, you know what? I'm facing this monster and this giant. I can do to this monster whatever I want to do. I'm going to fly around him. So I start flying around him. I start fighting him. And instead of running from him, and I whoop up on him. And you always win. And, and that's the cool thing about that dream. In life, I'm going somewhere with this. In life, we have many giants and they can be terrifying for us. And there's something in us that gets stirred up, fear that gets stirred up. And we can, we can move one of two directions with these giants in our lives. We can either run and hide or we can face them. And we can realize that in Christ, truly, I can do all things because he strengthens me. And I want to look at this man by the name of Caleb. And Caleb, 85 years old, and he says, I am as strong as when I was 40. And I guess when he was 40, he was pretty strong, okay? <laughs> Some of us, when we turn 40, we're not quite so sure. But anyway, at 85, do you know someone who's 85? Anyway, at 85, he, he, he's going to be a giant slayer. And I want to look at Caleb, because there's some clues and there's some truths that we're going to find in Caleb's life that when we apply them on a day-to-day -day basis, we can defeat these giants in our lives. The title of the sermon today is Confronting Our Giants. So turn with me to Joshua chapter 14. Sorry, I should have mentioned that to you a little bit earlier, give you some time. But Joshua 14, okay. Starting with verse 6, we're going to read to the end of the chapter, verse 15. Now, the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal. Now, pause for just a moment. You may remember that they have already fought what they call the central campaign, the southern campaign, and then the northern campaign. And we looked at the northern campaign headed up by uh, uh, the, uh, the enemies by King Hazer, or the king of Hazer, Jabin, king of Hazer. And his army that he accrued was vast as the sand on the seashore, probably the biggest battles. And we looked at some relatively obvious things that he did in battle that many times we just tend to overlook. So now these, these campaigns are over, and the job is now turned over to each of the tribes to go into their respective areas that they are inheriting and continue the job to its completion of destroying the Canaanites and Perizzites and Hivites and Hittites and Mosquito Bites, and you know who I'm talking about. All right, all of these people groups that have, as, as God said, uh, that their sins have reached their full, 
and now it was time for him to bring judgment. He was doing, through, doing so through Israel. So now the men of Judah, they want to inherit their lands. They approached Joshua at Gilgal, and you may remember Gilgal is the military headquarters for Israel. And Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Church, say that with me, wholeheartedly. You might highlight or underline or circle that word in your Bible. We're going to come back to it. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that your children forever and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent us out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron was, has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the, Can the Anakites. Then the land had rest from war. Now, if you'll... Put your fingers here because we're going to come back to this passage and turn with me to Numbers 13, verses 31 to 33. Numbers 13. You need to understand who these Anakites are. This actually is a reference back to that time when Joshua and Caleb came back with the other 10 spies after spying out the land. The 10 spies gave a bad report, meaning... We can't do this, but they gave a good report. I'm going to read the bad report because they give a human perspective of this situation that we need to have if we're going to understand what Caleb is up against right now. Verse 31, but the men who, Numbers 13, 31, but the men who had gone up with him, referring to Caleb, said, we cannot attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. That is, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in, their, in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. <laughs> I need to spend just a moment here and describe this concept of giants because we live in a, an age today which commonly called the scientific age. Most people who uh, embrace science, I embrace science, 
but I am not a naturalist. Most who embrace this concept of science are naturalists. That means we exclude the supernatural and what happens, all, all, everything that happens has its cause and effects in nature, in things that are seen and testable and verifiable. And we exclude the concept of God and at best, these people are deistic. That is, God created the world, but he left it to run on its own. One person used the analogy of a clock. God is the awesome clockmaker. He created the clock. He just left it to run on its own. Uh, but we serve a God who intervenes in human history, i.e., most specifically, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we've seen many miracles already, and the naturalist wants to exclude all of that. But in our day, when we start talking about giants, we start talking about people like Goliath that David slew. Oh, that's just a legend. That's just a myth. It's just an exaggeration. Goliath was probably a little over six feet tall, maybe six, six, and just a, you know, kind of big guy, maybe burly. And uh, so they just exaggerated his height in order to build this emphasis of faith in God. That's just not what my Bible tells me. My Bible tells me Goliath was about nine foot six to nine foot nine inches tall. Now, on record, we are not aware of people that tall. And so the most, many people would come to this passage, Numbers 13, or the one we're looking at today in Joshua 14, and the Anakites, who are apparently giants of the, the Nephilim race, and they would say, no, this obviously is an exaggeration. Now, we do have legends. We have legends of Gargantua and Cyclops and the Titans. You remember the Titans? Uh, that was a joke, by the way. You remember the Titans? Um, but the Titans were, in mythology, a combination of the gods and humans, as I understand. But they were really big, and yeah. And so the, this concept of the Anakites and the Nephilim, the giants, that kind of gets relegated in many people's minds as legend. And if we're going to do that, if you're going to do that, you're going to miss the point here. Because this isn't just, this isn't like a fable in which let's discard the facts or the historicity of this story. And let's just kind of sink our teeth into the, the moral of the story or the moral of the fable. And many people treat the Bible this way. The, the creation account, the flood account, the resurrection of Jesus, they're fables. And if you can just look past the fables, what some theologians years ago called demythologizing the Bible, as if the Bible was simply myth. They did believe that. But if we get past the myth, we really get to the heart of what it's teaching. Well, you can't truly do that if you don't believe the facts. If you discard the historicity of Jesus, who is he? He's a nobody. But Jesus is historical. These giants are historical. You've heard stories of Jack and the Beanstalk. You may have heard of uh, a gentleman by the name of Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh, I understand in the homeschool co-op, they have or are going to be looking at Gilgamesh. And according to the Epic of Gilgamesh, who, Mary, who very well may be, according to Josephus, uh, Nimrod, if you're familiar with Nimrod, um, he may well be that king, but he was the king of Uruk, and, which, by the way, Iraq gets its name from Uruk. And according to that, the Epic of Gilgamesh, he was 18 feet tall. You know, maybe he wasn't 18 feet tall, but was he, was that just an exaggeration? Well, we don't know. 
there are certainly elements of myth in that account. Um, and I'm going to let you study on that yourself. But the truth is, Gil, the, the story of the ark, Noah's ark, did not spring from that myth. That's how many people would like to see it. But rather, the true story of the flood is historical, and the stories of Gilgamesh with mythological elements then flowed from it. But Gilgamesh was a giant, apparently. As we begin to look at, you know, have there ever been giants, and I'm going to just try and satisfy for like two minutes here some of your curiosity, because I'm curious. I want to know what have they discovered. And the truth is um, that there have been some things that would lead us to believe, the scientific field to believe, that there were people um, and in some communities who were regularly taller than seven feet. Um, if, if for some reason, when you go throughout North and South America, uh, just about every Indian tribe has stories of giants. Um, they discovered a cave in Lovelock, Nevada in 1911, and they did some excav excavations in there. They originally went in there because of the guano. Do you know what guano is? No, guano... <laughs> Guano actually is explosive, but guano is cave bat droppings. Apparently, they had to dig through six feet of this stuff. And as they did that, um, and there were tons of it that a company had employed these men to excavate and, and pull out of the cave, they came across many bones, uh, some women six foot six inches, males larger than eight feet. Um, the neighboring Indians, the Paiute Indians, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, uh, have a story of these, um, they called them red-headed giants that were of the, the Sitaka that were apparently, they said, 12 feet tall. They managed to kill enough of them, the rest hid in this cave, and they burned them and smoked them to death, et cetera. And so that's how they were able to conquer them. But as they've gone into this cave, they have found some skeletons uh, that seem to perhaps at least lean in this direction. There are reports of skeletons over nine feet found in excavations of mounds in Wisconsin. Now, the difficulty that they have there is you're looking at bones. You're looking at these types of things, and you know, are, are they... Can, can you really get at an accurate uh, height of a person based on their skeleton? Well, for the most part, you can. Um, there is the what they call the giant of Castelnau. I don't. That's French, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. I didn't. Is that right, Castelnau? C a s t e l n a u. Anyway, Castelnau. It, in 1890, they found three portions of bone that they were they concluded is definitely human, but they're of unusual size, and they guessed the height at about 11 feet 6 inches. Now, again, these are fragments. They found three large skulls in, that, in France not too far away with a circumference of 28 to 32 inches, which would put them between 10 and, feet, 10 and 15 feet tall. Again, you're just talking about the circumference of a head. Some people in our country, you know, some people in this world, they just have big heads, okay? 
They just have really big heads, and you know, they're not exactly 10 to 15 feet tall, but they're not 28 to 32 inches either. So th there's not a whole lot of, of evidence, but there are some things that would lean in that direction. Apparently, there in the last several years, they've discovered uh, in southern Russia, I believe it is, mounds, caves, etc., of Russians. I, I can't remember the, um, the race, but in that general vicinity, and they're well over, they're eight feet and taller. So we do know that it would not be uncommon for certain people groups to be above eight feet. As a matter of fact, in, our, in, this, in the last century, we have discovered several people above eight feet. We have the largest person, his name is Robert Wadlow, I believe you pronounce it, at eight foot 11. Eight foot 11, his, his head would be scraping this tile right here. That's sagging just a bit, it shouldn't be. But uh, this right here is nine feet, and he would be just underneath this. Um, Goliath would be just underneath this ceiling here. Now, I want you to imagine someone that tall. Now, Robert Wadlow was an extremely slender man, and they have pictures of, I mean, very skinny. His legs are probably as big as mine, but he's just almost, he's half again taller than me. All right, and so they have knee problems and stuff like this. But there have been pictures that we have seen of just huge people uh, in the 1800, late 1800s, early 1900s, and they are at least eight feet, and they are stocky, they are big. So not all of these people eight feet and, and over are super skinny people. Some of them are so skinny they can't stand. Their legs and knees are so weak that they can't stand. They just they start growing at age like 13, and they never stop growing. Robert Wadlow died in 1940, I believe it was, and he was 22 years old. So these things happen, but what I, I'm mentioning this to us because it is not off the charts to say that someone like Goliath was nine foot six to nine foot nine inches. It is certainly within the realm of possibility, even scientifically. Now, if you go with me, just humor me a little bit. I'm going to spend a few minutes with this, but I want us to look at Genesis chapter 6. Um, there, there, there tends to be what I would consider a general misunderstanding of the Nephilim, and we, we need to at least look at this for a moment because the Anakites are from the Nephilim. Let's just realize that the Nephilim were very tall, very strong, given to violence, but the, the Nephilim were a race, they were not a people group, or I shouldn't say they were a race, they were a type of people of various nationalities. They would say they're Nephilim, meaning giants, meaning very tall. The word Nephilim, we're looking at Genesis 6 verse 4 by the way, the word Nephilim means fallen ones. Let me read the, the text here. Some of you may actually have in your version giants, the actual word in Hebrew is Nephilim, and the NIV that I'm reading from chooses to preserve that in the text. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Regardless of your personal view of the first three verses that talks about the sons of God going into the daughters of men, I personally in studying find this, the phrase sons of God found in Moses' writing uh, especially in the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's actually found that Masoretic text uses the, the phrase sons of Israel. So regardless, you probably may not have even understood what I just said. And that's fine, that's fine. But that phrase, sons of God, is something that is used to refer to those who follow the one true God. Um, 
in, in Deuteron Deuteronomy 32, uh, God, Yahweh, is referred to as the father and the, his followers as his sons and daughters. And so the sons and daughters of God were those who truly followed after him. These are those, according to the previous chapter of Genesis 5, they were those who were of the, of the line of Seth and that they were in the image and the, uh, the likeness of God. It's not that they necessarily looked just like God. If we're in the image of God, granted a broken image of God, and in Christ that image is being restored, we need to understand that this image of God that Adam was made in and that his son Seth was, that that reflects his character as well. To be a son of God means I am following God and my character is reflected in that. Of the line of Cain, Cain was a murderer. Lamech, one of his descendants, was a murderer. And in Genesis 4, that's what you see. But the reason why I'm mentioning this is when you come to Noah's day, in, in my personal understanding of this passage, it's not that fallen angels went and had sex with the with the human race, but rather that the line of Seth intermarries. Yes, the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth, intermarried with the line of Cain, the ungodly ones. And consequently, there is this tremendous apostasy and abandoning of the faith. And I would suggest to you that is one of the main reasons why it's included here, because we are found with only eight people in the entire civilization on the face of the earth who choose to follow the Lord. Methuselah, no doubt, was a follower of the Lord, but he died the year of the flood. His name given to him by Enoch, who was a prophet, the Bible tells us in Jude. <clears throat> His name means when he dies, it shall come. Well, when Methuselah dies, what shall come? If you do the math, he actually dies 1,656 years after creation, which is the very year of the flood. So we have only eight people who board Noah's Ark and they're the only ones who are following after God. And so verse, verses one through three tell us because the, of this intermarriage and honestly the wickedness that begins to creep into because people are abandoning their faith through these intermarriages. And throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you see Moses and others warning, do not intermarry with these people. You will worship their gods and you will turn away from Yahweh. Don't do that. Well, we see that happening here. And the second thing, verse four, it's kind of a verse that stands on its own. Many people understand that or believe that the, the Nephilim were the children of these intermarriages of fallen angels and, and humans. But if you look at the text, that's not actually what it's saying. And we know that from the very first phrase where it says the Nephilim were in the land in those days. The Nephilim were already there when this intermarriage and eventual apostasy happens. The Nephilim were in the land. So there's nothing expected these Nephilim were not the combination of humans and fallen angels and such. They were just men of unusual size. I'm almost tempted to. R-U-S's, yes. M-O-U-S's, yes. Anyways, men of unusual size. For those, that's from the Princess Bride. Yeah, so men of unusual size, and they, they, they were certainly within the realm of possibility within human DNA, and that's just from our measly discoveries in the last century. 
rather than observations of who, that, who has actually lived and etc. But these Nephilim, number one, the name means fallen ones, and they are the ones referred to when it says they were the heroes of old men of renown. Now, when it says, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, that is just giving us a landmark, if you will, historically of when the Nephilim were in the land. Now, we do know that after the flood, somehow the DNA was preserved, apparently through uh, one of the eight aboard the ark. There was nothing like evil because of that. Uh, please understand that. But the Nephilim, after the flood, were in the land. They actually inhabited the, Can the, the land of Canaan. We come across a guy by the name of Og, king of Bashan. Og, king of Bashan, the Bible tells us in Numbers, had a bed that was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. Okay, it was made of steel, or at least for the most part made of steel. And, you know, someone who has a bed 13 feet long, he was probably a pretty big dude. All right? I personally would uh, get lost in a bed that was 13 feet long. I would not need a bed that was 13 feet long. I think my bed is, what, 7 feet. Fits me just fine. Um, but who would have a bed, you know, 13 feet long? So the assumption, and, and it's clear from the text when it says that he was of the Rephaites, and if you research Rephaites, you realize Rephaites were giants as well. <clears throat> but the reason why I'm bringing up the Nephilim is this. They were the fallen ones by their name, and yet they were the heroes of old. They were the ones that the people of the land looked up to and said, He's my hero. And yet the Bible says that God judged the world because no one walked with him, except of course he ate, and violence filled the earth. This apostasy and these Nephilim who had filled the earth with violence and were praised for it, it corrupted the entire earth. I'm mentioning this to you so that you understand the backdrop is now we look at what Caleb chooses to be up against. You hear me say that? Chooses to be up against. According, and go with me back now to Joshua chapter 14, but Moses had promised Hebron to Caleb. And Caleb was excited about this. Caleb looked forward to Hebron being his homeland. Now we remember Hebron because during the days of Abraham, he camped near, it says near the tree of Mamre, which was near Hebron. And as he, as he looked out from Hebron or near Hebron, he could see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He'd actually see the smoke rising from that land and Sodom and Gomorrah would be in the southern portion of the Dead Sea. Some would suggest that the, the very heel, the southern section, which isn't very deep of the Dead Sea, covered Sodom and Gomorrah, certainly possible. But the truth is, even Abraham enjoyed this region called Hebron. Eventually, while they were in Egypt for 430 years, the Anakites came and conquered that area. Now, these Anakites were of the Nephilim stock. They were giants. They were huge men. Og, king of Bashan, of a similar stock, big man. The Bible tells us that he was the last of the giants, and so the, the giants are a, 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 a stock, if you will, a breed that is beginning to die out, but there's a lot of them right here in Hebron. 
And the significance of that is that is where Caleb wants to conquer and settle in. He doesn't look at it by saying, you know, there's giants in the land, so I'm just going to choose a different area. He chooses the hardest area in Canaan to conquer to make his own and to settle his family. Listen to that. He chooses the hardest area in Canaan to conquer, and he says, that's mine. Joshua, do you remember the promise that Moses made to me about Hebron? And it's filled with Anakites. I want it. I'm 85 years old. I realize it, but I am still as strong and vigorous as when I was 40. I want that land. I want it mine. I want to settle my family there. Man, when you're talking about settling your family, think about that. Don't you want the safest place for them? Don't you want the, you know, the prosperity for them, blessing for them? You, Caleb has such confidence here of eradicating these giants in the land, these Anakites, he is willing to bring his entire family. And it's not just his immediate family. It's his, it's his grandsons and granddaughters and all of them. Come on with me. We're living in Hebron. What? What are you talking about, granddad? Don't you remember those are giants, son? What do you mean giants? It doesn't matter if they're giants. God promised me. And that's all that he has to go on. God promised me. That's all that I need. I'm taking that land. Are you with me? And I can only imagine that they all said, yep, we're with you, Dad. We're with you, Grandpa. We're going in. So I want to look at that. I want us to kind of unwrap that a little bit and, and see what, what all of this is about. Overcoming giants. How do we gain victory in this area of our lives? Because we face giants. But first, let me ask this question. What are giants in our lives? Giants in our lives would be those problems that we come up against and we try handling them over and over and over. They are obstacles to victory. It seems like no matter how hard we try, these giants don't fall. They're stubborn, they're strong, they're persistent, may even add demonic at times. What do they do to us? They instill fear, intimidation. They attack our faith. Because we've tried once or twice to oust them from our land and just we just can't seem to do it. They breed discouragement. They dominate. They control. They breed hopelessness, even tend to immobilize us emotionally. And this is Satan's tactic. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He, he wants to set up obstacles in your pathway to discourage you and to just say, well, you know, I really thought that God was going to do this, but I guess not. Well, how do you know that? Because I've tried once or twice, and it just, it's too hard. It's just too hard. I can't. Isn't that the attitude? that the 10 spies had when they came back from exploring. Like, yeah, we saw the Anakites, the Nephilim. We were like grasshoppers in their eyes. They were huge. Their cities are huge. They're fortified walls. Excuse me, they're huge. Sorry, but I had to say it. Um, they're, they're just huge, and, and there's no way that we can overcome them. Well, wait a second. Is that so? I have an example here in my Bible in Joshua 14 of a man who did, and he was victorious, and I want to know, okay, well, how might I? I don't know about you, but 
One of my favorite movies, and, and perhaps even my favorite movie to this day, it's still, it's been out for a long time, is the movie Facing the Giants. And, and I just thought, you know, I'm going I'm to list some of the giants that we see in that movie. And you might remember some more of them. I listed eight here. Are you with me? You don't have to write these down. You can if you want. How about apathy on the high school campus or lack of revival? And you remember that pastor who goes around laying hands on the lockers, praying for revival. And later in the movie, we see that revival. Number two, lack of finances. I love the scene where he's pulling up to his house and the car dies. Ugh. It's like, well, you know what? At least he got home. All right. And uh, I guess maybe it's when he takes his foot off the gas, who knows, but it just dies in the front lawn. And he, I'm sure he felt like driving it into a pit and burying it six feet deep, but that was his only means of transportation. But by the end of the movie, is he still driving that vehicle? No, he's not. Number three, Grant, the main character, is facing the possibility of losing his job. Number four, you may remember they have an inability to conceive and bear children. Um, this might be a duplicate. The need for personal revival. There's a need for revival in the campus, but there's a need for personal revival in Grant's heart. What an awesome scene when he goes into the field and he wait, I guess if I'm remembering correctly, it's been a, a year or two since I've watched it, but doesn't he go off into the, you know, getting alone with God? He wakes up and he, he, he begins, we see him now and the sun is beginning to rise and he's reading the word and the spirit of God is just so on him and just breaking him. And, and, and honestly, for most of us, what, and what breeds revival in our hearts, God must first bring us to a place of complete brokenness before God in which we realize I, I am tired of living my life in my own strength. And I've tried knocking these giants down and just like the 10 spies, we come back and we eventually say, I can't. And we day-to-day -day live in personal defeat. And we start having this view that God can't and so obviously I can't, or at least God won't, and so I can't. And Grant needs this revival. He's kind of been the offense straddler, one foot in the kingdom and one foot not. And he's kind of been half there and half not. And God is just saying, today is the, is the day for, for this breaking through into your life. He's calling you this morning to be an overcomer. He's calling you to slay the giants that you have tried in the past but couldn't. He is calling you again to say, step forward. Be a Caleb in this generation. Number six, consistently lose, consistent losing seasons, the Shiloh Eagles. Every season, a losing season, and it affects the team's attitude. Number seven, they have a, there's a bad relationship between a father and the son that towards the end of the movie or two-thirds of the way, whatever, through the movie, you, we see healed. Powerful. Man, I cry every time I see that. And number eight, obviously, the end of the movie. And if you've not seen it, spoiler alert, the state championship game against the Giants in which the Shiloh Eagles are outmanned and outsized, and yet they build that wall of, help me out, Wall of Stone, is that what they call it, Wall of Stone? Wall of Stone, build that wall of stone. 
And many of the guys in, in, have been in there all four quarters and they're absolutely exhausted and they press to the end. And I'll let you see the movie to see who wins. And so this is what we are up against. Maybe for some of us, it's personal sin issues. Maybe it's the grades that you're, 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 you're trying to bring up your grades and it just seems like you can, a grades in school, spiritual lethargy that you're facing, relational breakdowns, maybe someone close to you walking away from the Lord and we're struggling and we're saying, God, where are you right now? Why can't you just step in and, and fix this? health issues that we're facing, financial or business issues that we're facing that can seem overwhelming and wearying at the end of the month. Okay, God, here we go again. A spouse who refuses to walk with the Lord or walk closely. Issues of people pleasing. I could go on and on, but I want us to now look at how does Caleb overcome these giants in what is supposed to be his land. Number one, if you look at verse eight, it says there, my brothers went up with me. They made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God, how church, wholeheartedly. Thank you, wholeheartedly. It, skipping over, it says, so Hebron was, uh, verse 14, so Hebron, has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. There's no halfway devotion here. There's nothing about halfway committed, fully committed to do God's will. That's what we're getting at here. God's will, we know God's will. It's right here in very plain black and white principles of scripture, how we can live. And many times as we're in the word, uh, and I pray that you're in the word on a daily basis, he begins by his spirit to speak to our hearts and how we can in our individual Mike Curtis day-to-day -day situations, how I can walk this out, how you can walk these principles out. And so the spirit now begins to speak to your hearts and we, we can understand what God's will is, but we must be fully devoted to doing that will. So I guess what I'm getting at is, if you know God's will, are you pursuing it? Because many times there's something in our hearts, church, come on now, we can love our sin. I mean, that's, let's be honest, that's why we sin, right? We don't sin because we hate sin. We sin because we are loving it, at least at that moment. And our hearts get lured and seduced in this process of temptation and we we jump in we lose our temper we know that we're not supposed to we can feel it slipping away from us and we don't stop it and take the right course and instead we step in and say no and we say things that hurt our children or hurt our spouse or hurt our boss and so we get fired right right and we need wholehearted devotion to Jesus, point number one in this, means full commitment to God's will. Second Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, seeking to strengthen those whose hearts are halfway committed to him. I hope your Bible doesn't read that way, whose hearts are fully committed to him. Now, I want you to think this way, because many of us have this mentality 
that, that basically believes that I can push a, a boulder halfway up a hill, stop, come back at it a, a, another time, and push it up the rest of the way. What's going to happen in the meantime? It's going to roll back down the hill. And we, and we just think, well, you know what? I'll just keep trying a little bit here and trying a little bit there. I'll be half-hearted devoted here or half-hearted tomorrow. And God is saying, you know, do you want to see victory in your life? You need to be fully devoted. You want to be strengthened. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the world. He's actually seeking to strengthen people. He's seeking to strengthen you. But who is it that he is going to strengthen? Those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Now, I'm not saying that you need to work and work, and this is all about me and my effort. If that's the case, you're missing the grace of God, and we're going to be focusing on that a little bit more later. But this is about us being yielded to God's will. What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? I mean, this is the Son of God wrestling with the Father's will. He was wrestling with the Father's. This was not like no-brainer. Jesus, we got this with both hands and, and tied, around, tied behind his back type of thing. Jesus was wrestling to the point of perspiring Sweat with drops of blood, or it was sweat like drops of blood. That's pretty serious, intense pressure in the midst of prayer. Yet he said, Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus did not sin in that battle. And at every time that you are faced, with temptation and there's a pulling of the flesh to give in, we must say at some point, not my will, but yours be done, God. I can remember the, so anyway, here's my question. Do you want victory at any cost to you? Any cost to you? Because most people don't. They want victory, oh my goodness, not at any cost. You know, Jesus, I'm willing to devote myself to you, but what's it going to cost me? Yeah, I'm gonna, I want to follow Jesus. I want to become a Christian today, but what's it going to cost me? And as soon as you start entertaining that question, but what is it going to cost me? You have removed your heart from that equation. Because God says, do you want, do you, do you want strength? Do you even want salvation? Do you want me to come in and rescue you? At this moment, there must be a brokenness and a yieldedness to God at any cost. And it's going to cost us something, church. I'm not talking about some works-oriented gospel. That is not at all what Jesus said when he said, deny self, take up your cross, which means be willing to follow me to death, and follow me daily. That's what I want of you. Do you want to be my disciple? You must give up everything. He said there in Luke 14. And so we're talking about wholehearted devotion here and, and following him at any cost. And I can remember years ago in which uh, two guys that lived with us at the moment, Daniel and um, Patrick, were working with me out of my van. God had prospered the business, and, and there was lots of work. And I was, I was at a, a holler. Uh, account. I had had that account from the day that, or, or from the, the month, I should say, 
that I stepped into Central Florida, into Orlando. That was the first account that I had. And as I walked in, the manager sat me down and he said, Mike, I can't have you do any more work on this lot. What? As a matter of fact, none of you can't do any work on any of the Holler or Classic dealerships. I thought, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, they, they made an executive decision and you have to be on the preferred vendor list in order to do any of their work and they have closed that list. I didn't even know anything about it. I didn't know how to apply for the preferred vendor list. It, th this thing happened and, and I knew the two painters companies that they had brought in and they had been with them for about as long as I had, but it really caught me by surprise. I lost 35% of my business that day in the space of 60 seconds. And I walked outside, and I'll be honest with you, I was discouraged. And I, I'm trying to pastor a church, I'm supporting my family with this job, and I said, Daniel, Patrick, I'm, we're not gonna tolerate this. What are you talking about, Mike? They just made this, no, I'm not gonna tolerate this. I believe the devil has gotten into this, and I'm not gonna, we together, we're gonna pray, and we're gonna get these accounts back. And their, their faith rose up within me, and I said, I'm not going to stand by this. We're going to believe God that, that the enemy's trying to get in here. Not they're, These managers, they're not our enemy, but the enemy's gotten into this, and we're going to ask him right now that he's going to give us these accounts back. We prayed right there on the lot. We even held hands, believe it or not, three guys holding hands in the midst of all of public, and we prayed, and we just cried out to God that he would give us these accounts back. Not just this one, but all of them back. And within two months... God had shown me a way to get on that preferred vendor list. And not only did he all get all of those accounts back, but I had managed in that month's time to have some free time to get into another account or two. And so the business was bigger in two months than it had been prior to it. That's just how God works, church. Let's be fully devoted to him. It says right there in chapter number two, deep conviction of truth and corresponding faith. In verse 7, he says, I brought back a report according to my convictions. And in verse 12, it says, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. There's a conviction of what is truth. We're not duped by the, the, the enemy and, and discouraged, and we don't buy into his bag of lies. You know, we honestly, we can go through life, and we can experience hardship, and we can begin to doubt does God really love me? We can begin to doubt, you know, maybe God can, but for whatever reason, he just won't. And you get wearied of hearing testimonies of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, look what God did. You may have been discouraged right now when I shared that testimony and thinking to yourself, well, why doesn't God do that with my business? Why doesn't God do that in my life? And, and I, I can't answer that question necessarily. That happened over 10 years ago, by the way. Um, and the, the truth is, that we need to be rock solid on the very character of God. God is not on trial right now in your life circumstances. And yet you put him on trial, don't we? We do this. And if God doesn't come through, the way we are asking and praying, well, God must not love me. God must love others more. God doesn't care about me as much. God, for whatever reason, I guess I must be have to be perfect like a pastor. And by the way, I am far from that. Talk to my wife and my kids, but I am far from that. But the truth is, 
God is wanting you and I to be steadfast in what is truth. He, he, he's saying, I want Hebron because God promised it to me. That's it. Case closed. God is not on trial. It's not as if, okay, God, I will trust you if you give me Hebron. That's not what we do. I will trust you, God, if you give me Hebron. If you bless my finances, I will trust you, God. And God is saying, I'm sorry. I think you have this completely turned around. You need to trust me, and then I will give you Hebron. God is not on trial. God is truthful. He is loving. He is faithful. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that changes those truths about who God is. Whether he answers your prayer exactly the way you're praying or not. And so we need to be steadfast and stop entertaining the doubts and the hurts and the discouragements. And yes, I am not saying we have to know the whys. God, why did you allow this? I'm not saying we shouldn't ask that question. But can I ask you, if God doesn't answer you, what are you going to do? And facing the giants, you know, right at that scene where she hears that, no, I'm sorry, but you're not pregnant. What a powerful scene. I cry at that scene every time. I guess because I have five kids and I know the blessing they are. My kids are such a blessing. And now grandkids, praise God, it overwhelms me sometimes. But at that moment, she, she, just, she, she just gets real with God. And she says, God, if I never have children, I will still love you. Because she's rock solid on that truth of God's love. And there is nothing that changes that truth. It is eternal. It cannot change. And therefore, she will continue to believe it. Regardless of the circumstances in life and what she sees. God is the God of the impossible. He acts accordingly. Now, I love that little scene in Facing the Giants in which he gives a, the pastor gives a prophetic word to Graham. And he says, God has planted you here. And yes, in, in essence, he says, through a story, prepare for rain. Prepare for rain. You know, just this past week, um, my wife and I, my family, we've been doing some fasting, et cetera, et cetera, and various things. And, you know, just praying that God is going to give us breakthrough in the business. Um, this month had been a horrendous month. And God, we need you to show up. We need you to provide. And so there was some provision. I go into the lot on Thursday. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I text Meredith. Yeah, just actually is before that, um, before I texted you. Uh, th this, there was only a certain amount on the lot. And as I am working on that and almost done, a gentleman pulls up and he says, hey, can you do this, my bumper? I said, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to probably need to do it tomorrow morning, but yeah, I can take care of that. And so my wife and I were praying, okay, Mike, let, she's saying, let, let's just pray that when you go on the lot, God's going to give you more. And I'm thinking, I've already walked the lot. There's no more work, but it is possible, so let's pray. So we prayed, God, when I go on the lot, may there be more work. So I finished this guy's vehicle up, and God reminds me, Mike, 
you're packing everything up right now. What are you expecting of this man? And I stopped and I thought, man, I'm expecting that there's no war. But I don't know this. And so I, I go up and I won't go through the process, but a vehicle had just arrived on the lot. And I personally had prayed, God, give me a vehicle today with two bumpers that need to be done. We'll touch up. That, that would be a maximum cost. I, wa- I looked at the vehicle. And as I looked at it, I realized both bumpers of this vehicle need to be done. And I just said, wow, God. Because one of the things in the very early morning, I was figuring when I go to the lot, I, I'm going to be there only till lunch, so why pack my lunch? The Lord challenged me, Mike, you're praying for me to bless you and you're not going to pack your lunch. You need to believe that I'm going to give you work, so pack your lunch. Some of you need to hear that, pack your lunch. Pack your lunch and a whole jug of ice water because you're going to need it. See, that's faith. I'm not saying that God's going to get you across this road safely, so don't look both ways for traffic and just walk out there and say, you know, cars, you need to stop. I'm not telling you to do that. But there are points in which we just need to believe. If I'm praying, God, do this, let's believe it, church. Let's act on it. In Mark, it says, believe that you have already received. And so I was not able to... they gave me the vehicle, but he said, Mike, it still needs to go through service, et cetera. So let's do that next week. But yes, I am giving you that vehicle. So I just said, okay, thank you, Lord. I will be able to do that vehicle you have provided. I need to hurry here. Number three, you know, and I mentioned this last week, move past the excuses. Because as long as we have excuses, the ball is not in my court to change. I can always finger point and blame on this circumstance or that person. And that's why this failed. And once we own it, once we say, you know what, it failed, at least in part because of me. Now I can change me. Now I can allow God's grace to change me. So let's, as we get rid of the excuses, we need to be determined determined to gain victory. And we see this here where he says, I'm 85 today and I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. Then the truth is he was 40, it, it, it had been 45 years. God had promised him 45 years ago. That moment, and just walk, I'm going to walk you through this chronologically, but they left Egypt, spent one year on Mount Sinai, and then they investigated the land. One year, into the exodus. God said, you're going to wander for 40 years. Technically, they wandered 38 years, but a total of 40 years before they crossed the Jordan River. One year at Mount Sinai, 38 years of just wandering, and then one year it took to conquer the east side of the Jordan, Og, king of Bashan, and so on. 40, so it's, and, and then now, You add six more years because that's 39 plus six equals the 45 that he's being, that he's given here. The bottom line is it took one year to conquer the east side, six years to conquer the west side of the Jordan, a total of seven years. Seven years of fighting, of wars, of strategizing, of believing God to give them the land. We read through the book of Joshua in these first 13 chapters very quickly, and maybe some of you can do it in less than 30 minutes, and I'm going to guarantee you it took a whole lot longer than 30 minutes to conquer the land of Canaan, seven years. And maybe there's some symbolism in that regardless. Seven years. Sometimes we just expect God, when we're praying, you're just going to give it to me like right away. We're going to conquer the land of Canaan. Okay, there's going to be one battle. They're all going to be gathered together. I don't know. Well, well, let's just say Armageddon. 
huh? And we're just going to win that battle, and everything's going to be ours. I'm kind of joking there only because we've looked at the millennium last couple of weeks. But the truth is, we, we, we fight these, these battles, and we just expect the enemy's just going to cave. It's going to be an easy victory. Why? Because God's on our side. And I'm going to tell you, because God is on your side does not mean the victory will be easy. It only means that you can definitely win because we can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So we need to be geared up. We need to pack our lunch. We need to realize that I'm going to step out in faith. And this might take me a long time, but there will be victory. There will be victory. And then lastly, and I don't have time to develop this and I wish I could, but we need to walk in and speak with authority. He says, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. See, there's a balance between the Lord helping me and what he has promised and I will. There is this sense of authority that we need to walk in and speak. And I realize that amongst many conservatives, and I consider myself a conservative, amongst many conservatives, Bible-believing Christians, this idea of speaking with authority, walking in authority, you know, I'm not so sure about that. You know, I've laid hands on my dryer and God has healed my dryer. And some of we look at and say, that's... You know, that is so hokey. It really is. Why would you want to pray over your dryer? Why would you want to pray over your car? Why would you want to pray over the lawnmower? Or why would you want to pray at that moment? Help me to find the screw hole because I put a dozen holes in my house wall and I don't want to put a 13th hole in it. I want to hit that hole. You remember that story from last week. I mean, some of these things, are, they're kind of silly. Can I just say this? In, in Acts chapter 9, verse 40, Peter goes into the room where Dorcas, whose name is also Tabitha, lays on her bed and she has died. He has specifically been asked to come and resurrect her. How about that for pressure? He walks into the room and he kneels beside her bed and he prays. I don't know how long he has prayed, but he prays and he prays and he stands up and he does not say, and Father, I just, laying hands, I just pray that you would heal Tabitha in Jesus' name. And he could have said that. He could have. But he had just prayed beside her bed, and this is what he, he stands up, and he says, Tabitha, get up. That's all that he says. It is a command of authority, as if he were God himself. Can I just say that when you speak in Jesus' name, you are speaking with, and the phrase is power of attorney, you are speaking as if, you are Jesus himself. You are speaking with the authority of Jesus. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Because he may not be physically, bodily here, but I am standing in his place as a Christian, one who is in Christ, and I'm speaking as Christ would, Tabitha, get up. And can I just say this, that when Jesus was, was in, the, in the boat, he didn't say, and Father, I just ask you, it'd be really nice if you could calm this storm. I'm sure that he may have prayed to his father, but he spoke and he said, peace, be still. So my conservative friends, do you think that was hokey? Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves, inanimate objects. Was that hokey? He exercised the authority that he had been given. When Jesus 
When Jesus had done a miracle, he said, you need to have faith such that you would speak to this mountain, be removed, and it be cast into the sea. Oh, man, how hokey is that? No, that is not hokey. That is authority. I mean, why would Jesus tell us to speak to the mountain, an inanimate object that is so much bigger than we are, and he's not just trying to choose something that is so out there he would never do it. He certainly did it at creation. He will do it when he destroys the earth. God does those things. Now, he may not move a literal mountain in your life, but please understand that he is talking about speaking to the giants in your life, those things that are so much bigger than you that you would think, oh, my goodness, this is impossible. No, it's not. Because we need to speak with authority. I will drive them out. And I want to challenge you, church, to have such faith that would speak to those things that, that are standing in your way, those obstacles to obtaining what God is calling you to, and to call them out and just say, you will not stop what God has called me to. And so I speak to you, mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. You have that authority. Christ says, I have all authority on heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. And then he commanded them, so go and make disciples. You have authority. You can cast out demons. You can lay hands on the sick and they be healed. You can proclaim the gospel. And by the power of the truth of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they can be radically changed forever. It is not by your strength. It is by your willingness speak the word with authority that isn't anything but hokey there is a definite new testament and old testament biblical precedent that christ is calling us to walk in it is not hokey and so i remember when i was praying for that dealership. I spoke with authority. I prayed with authority. We were at another account, and it was just constantly bad. It just wasn't working. And it had gone. It was about in 07, 08 when the dealership started borrowing all the money. Uh, that dealership lost a Ford account. And the truth is, I said, Mike, this is what we're going to do. We're going to walk around this dealership. And I know that sounds hokey, but we're going to walk around this dealership. We're going to pray, and we are going to declare with authority. And if there is anything in the demonic realm that is seeking to step in and keep us from this account, then that de those demons will be bound. Satan's plans will be confounded because the light confounds the darkness. That's what John 1 tells us. And so... We're going to speak with we're going to pray with authority and we're going to speak with authority and that's exactly what we did and God did a miracle in the very next week in the doors it was as if the doors opened actually it was that week and God began opening the doors Church can, can you stand I'm past time can you stand with me I want to ask you what giants are in your life what giants what obstacles are you facing they may be sins they may be struggles they may be obstacles keeping you from something you feel God has called you to the, your promised land whatever that might be what is it that's blocking you what is it that's keeping you what 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 is it that is frustrating your walk with God what breakthrough do you need let let's let's 
apply these principles. Let's seek to walk in faith. Let's believe God for miracles. Let's, let's, let's be like Caleb. You know what? I want Hebron. That's mine. I don't care how many giants are in the land. They're going down because God has promised me. And I'm going to take that land. That land is yours. It's yours. Take it. And so, Father, we come boldly before you. We are confident, not cocky, because of what Christ has done for us and called us to. And we do not do this in our strength. Actually, Father, for many of us, our shoulders, our backs are up against the wall. And physically, we are limited. Financially, we are limited. We have run out of our resources. There is nowhere else to turn. And we are not going to give up. And we need your grace right now to be poured out upon us because I can't, but you can. And so, Father, I'm asking that you give breakthrough, that you come through for us, that you would cause your spirit to rise up within us, to take this land, to believe you for big things, to speak with authority, to be able to run to and, and take the land that is perhaps even the most difficult because this is the nature of our God. This is who you are, Father. Jesus, earlier we sung, you are all I need. You are more than enough. And we are fully satisfied in you. And that is our declaration of truth this morning. We are fully satisfied and content in you. In you resides every resource that I need to see these giants come down. Father, please, we ask you in the precious name of Jesus Christ, bring down these giants that we have been facing. Let us take this land that you have promised to us let us walk in a greater holiness. Let us walk in a more vivid passion for you. May, may we walk with such confidence and faith and authority, God. You will provide, and we believe this. We know this. Bring down these giants, God. May they no longer intimidate us or fill us with fear. But in faith, we speak to the mountain. Be removed and cast into the sea. God, may you do it today. In Jesus' name. I apologize I went over this morning. Uh, God bless you guys. Have an absolutely awesome, awesome week. And